This is Season 2, Episode 15 of the podcast, The Arbitration Station. I'm Joel Dahlkuth-Kullborg, and I say happy GDPR Day to you, Brian Kodak. If I get another email from another company that I didn't even know that they had my information, I'm going to be so angry. Don't you have a bunch of colleagues and friends working on this, though, making good lawyer money, prepping businesses for what to do with our data? Yes. We, yeah, we had a lot of meetings here and a lot of consulting uh, events. Um, but did, have you gotten emails from, like, a ticket company that you bought a concert ticket from 10 years ago? And oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're like, I, e- easily, I've received 250 emails over the last week or so. And I don't even get to see the good part because... I don't work for a firm, so I'm not that involved in how this affects corporations. I'm just a lowly consumer who who is bothered by my footprint, i.e. every site I visited over the last decade who are now right. coming back to me asking right. to interact. I have a funny, uh, it's actually in its intersection with law, as I got an email from a law firm that I applied to before I even started at Mannheimer saying, we have your profile on file, and we hear oh, the, really? the new GDPR stuff, so it was interesting. Oh, and it's got to be like six, seven years ago. They still kept it on file. Yeah, and it's the only firm that contacted me, so I'm going to sue all the other ones. Yeah, <laughs> or at least ask them to update your profile. <laughs> right. That that old. There's a lot of other news going on. This is maybe the last, the, not the last, but the the second to last episode we'll do. We'll talk about that, I guess, uh, at some later point. Our future plans for the podcast, but but before summer is always, of course, major major news. Uh, cycle uh, in, in many ways, uh, not just GDPR. And there are, we have already talked about ACMEA, and ACMEA keeps popping up now. It's in Svea Court of Appeal. Both Spain and Poland have yeah. challenged awards, stage in Stockholm, treaty awards, and are relying on, on ACMEA to support I will not their be commenting. So that means that the, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I know, I know. And neither will I, because uh, I have already spent too much time on this interesting development but there are other uh, now it all escapes me but we have other arbitration related news that we should probably help me out what else um the gar came out with a, a oh, news story right. with squire Patton boggs they teamed up to develop the universal citation and in international arbitration which basically is in the u.s we have something it's called the blue book um, and it's basically the Bible of citations. And if you cite wrong, courts will throw it out. And it's depending on each state, each level of court. But now we have a universal one that they're recommending for international arbitration, which I think is great um, as a as a nitpicker myself. It, it could be, but it could also be, I saw another academic uh, posting about this when it came out, some, some ironic cartoon on the topic of Oh, so we have so many different standards out there for how to cite. Hmm, what can we do about that? Oh, I know. Let's make another standard <laughs> that will make all the other standards superfluous. But in reality, you just get number 15 on the list of like how to approach an issue. But do we? So I, I mean, I guess it, what I'm saying is that it depends on the buy-in. If if we get course. universal support for this and it, it it does become a blue book, that is tremendous. If not, it's just you know yet another way of 
how to cite a domestic court decision in international arbitration proceedings. Right. I, yeah. I I want I don't I haven't looked through, but I was just when you said that I was wondering if they included domestic court judgments because that is going to be so specific. They did. they did. Yeah, and they I think they they've consulted people. I looked basically only at that when I leafed through the the thing because that's what I'm doing in my dissertation. I'm trying to clean up the section on on set asides and I am not sure how to cite them and basically there is of course no universal standard right. so what they were trying to do is they asked experts in the various jurisdictions on how to cite court cases from those jurisdictions and then they included that as a, like a subsection I so, I, so if that is an indication of the rest of the material I guess it could be useful yeah uh, but uh, yeah as you said buy-in is key for sure Another thing that came out was the Dutch model BIT, which is a bit specific, but it was something that will have Jan Ponson. No pun intended. A bit specific. Bit BIT. Oh, hey! <laughs> where's where's our radio Insert sound effect? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> boing, 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 boing. Um, <laughs> Dutch. The Dutch model BIT came out, and it's it's a new generation of BITs, I think. Um, and this had a bunch of provisions that were addressed a lot of kind of current issues they had no party appointed arbitrator was um in the bit um no double hatting which means that someone sitting as arbitrator could not sit as counsel um not just within that arbitration but they cannot have sat as counsel within the last five years i think is what it said um arbitrator fees were in the bit how they were going to be and both exit and onset arbitration and in the latter case the pca is designated as uh, administrating uh, administrating i think the proceedings or at least to be the default appointing authority right so which is interesting because pca is in the hague so i mean it's an international body but it's still to be identified in a dutch bit as a dutch-based institution that's uh, that's an interesting development and i think there were a lot of like substantively also a lot of updates in this BIT, and it's clear yes. that the the uh, the EU Commission has either signed off expressly on this or been involved somehow uh, in between the lines because it's very much a codification of where the EU Commission wants to take investment. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't know both that. Substantially, procedurally, it looks basically like the the CETA agreement if you look at the various substantive standards and and then of course all these procedural stuff that you just mentioned is even more progressive and probably more in line with what they're trying to do at Oncetral and the Netherlands of course there's the the Dutch golden standard and it's the the biggest capital exporting country when it comes to historically at least when it comes to bit programs and a lot of uh, supposedly or seemingly non-Dutch claimants have initiated arbitrations under Dutch BITs because it's easy to incorporate in the Netherlands. So the fact that it is the Netherlands, it's also an interesting development of, of all countries. Definitely. I mean, it's. I, th- I thought it was great to see how progressive this is, whether it works or not and whether people buy into it again is a different story. But I think that seeing these type of developments reflected in the instruments is pretty interesting, which leads us maybe to our topics. Yes, we're back to basics, you and I. Uh, and a microphone <laughs> we are doing this this is the first time for that in like what five months that it's just the two of us no nobody else involved in an episode we'll see how if how we it goes. still got it <laughs> it's we should say one thing before we move to the substance because i don't think it's been on audio but our twitter followers will know this now we do have the discount codes now 
from Oxford University Press for the various books that we have talked about or the authors that we've talked to at least on, on the podcast before. They're on the arbitrationstation.com under shop. And I think the easiest way is to use those links if you want to buy either Taylor St. John's book on the rise of Mr. State Arbitration or Ben Hayward's book on Conflict of Laws or Catherine Rogers' book on ethics and international arbitration, or Campbell and Matthew and Lawrence's book on substantive principles in investment arbitration. I think it those sounds are like we're bought by OU people. We're not. <laughs> we are independent. Yeah, we are. But we happen to like these books. And since we talked to these authors and we got the opportunity, we thought we would just spread the love. In the event that any of our listeners are interested in buying these books anyway, I think there's a 20 or maybe even 30% discount on them. So you might utilize them. Although I know also that a few people have bought uh, at least Taylor's book even before the discount codes because they listened to her to her interview. So we're sorry to those of you who did not have right. the patience to wait for discounts. It's too bad. Look at your return policy. So substance. Yes, we have three topics, and Joel, you'll be mastering the first topic, which will be what? It will be Investment Law 101. It's strange that we haven't come to this before, but I guess that's just a testament to the fact that we can keep doing this for years. People always ask me, like, when are you running out of topics to talk about? And I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, and this is, uh, and this is evidence of that, because I will be talking about the Salini criteria slash test slash crucible slash model <laughs> i.e the, the different ways there are of uh, defining what an investment is which the vast majority of investment treaty arbitration tribunals have had to wrestle with basically and, exactly uh, and so it's something that is uh, very common and well known to most investment treaty arbitration specialists but i thought we would do sort of a general discussion on this topic also for those who are not primarily working with treaty-based cases. Yeah, it would actually be a great introduction to people who are focusing on commercial um, to kind of think. Yeah, of... It, it is It is actually like the second lecture on most investment treaty arbitration uh, courses. So it's good to, to get a primer on the basics. Yes. Um, and then I will lead the second topic, which will be about procedural orders, um, which I mean, at first blush is not something that you would think is very controversial. But I think that at the outset, arbitrators especially now are trying to get a lot of things ironed out in the beginning because the more planning in the beginning means a more streamlined arbitration process. Um, and maybe we'll talk about some things and some modernities that we've seen in procedural orders and also uh, issues that parties should be spotting early on and, and hopefully memorializing in an early procedural order to avoid any conflict later on in the proceedings. POs. P.O. As we say, in the business. In the business. <laughs> Well, P.O. in singular, P.O.'s plural, P.O. 7, as we said in P.O. 7. As we said in P.O. 7, we said in P.O. 12 as well. And then Happy Fun Time is Happy Fun Time um, University, Happy Fun Time Law School, a bit bit of educational Happy Fun Time, not just uh, uh, loose talk. This time it's somewhat educational at least because we, both of us and most of our listeners can recite the entirety of the New York Convention and maybe also the Exit Convention in our sleep, but we will be talking about some of the other international instruments that may or may not come into play in arbitration that you should be aware of, at least. Uh, and for me, it's an academic exercise. And for you, I think it's a practical exercise, because sometimes strange treaties or conventions pop up, and you don't really know what they do, but you have to work with them in order to achieve a goal on behalf of a client. 
Absolutely. The forgotten, the fallen soldiers, we can say. The forgotten soldiers. The unsung heroes. Exactly. The unsung heroes. The obscure uh, players in the 3D world. Exactly. All right. Well, we have three issues lined up and let's move on. So what is an investment? This question has faced many, and as I said initially, probably most tribunals, because most investment treaties contain a definition of investment, jurisdiction, ratione materia. Mm-hmm. And there are different schools of thought on how to understand what an investment is, and we will go through those, focusing on the so-called Salini approach and a few issues related to this Salini approach. This, of course, comes up all the time, together with the definition of investor, which we touched upon, at least parts of, when you got your Swedish citizenship. <laughs> we might do a more more broader, like general, what is an investor segment. But yeah. um, what is an investment comes, comes up usually together with what is an investor. And the roots here, as is often the case, are from the exit convention which famously contains no definition of investment, which is confusing because the first sentence of Article 25, dealing with the jurisdiction of exit, says that the jurisdiction of the center shall extend to any legal dispute arising directly out of an investment. But that's all we get, basically. We don't get what an investment is, more than that very generic word. And different criteria for what an investment is uh, were discussed during the drafting of the exit convention. But the question is, and has been for many tribunals, what conclusions should we draw from the fact that no such criteria were ultimately included in the exit convention? So it's clear that you need an investment to get jurisdiction, but they ended up, the drafters, with no definition of what an investment means. And there are a few different approaches to, to this and how we should understand this. And here, I should say, is but one of the areas in which Taylor's book and the supporting material she dug up and relied on is very useful for advocacy. So listen up if you're arguing the definition of investment under the Exit Convention, because she points out that the drafting of the Exit Convention was not a state-driven process in which a bunch of states sat in a room advancing their government's positions and interacting and then writing down record of the discussion. It was rather the World Bank and a number of designated experts, a small number basically, that did the drafting with the World Bank, i.e. Aaron Brokis, having the final word based on recommendations from these designated experts. So it is a bit dangerous to read in too much into the negotiating history of the Exit Convention because it wasn't really a negotiation as we understand like other interstate negotiations. It was the World Bank and a few experts appointed by the World Bank talking to each other, more or less. In any event, one school of thought is that this lack of uh, specification of what is and what is not an investment in, in the Exit Convention means that we should understand investment as broadly as possible, basically encompassing every kind of economic activity. So they could have defined, i.e. limited, what an investment is. They decided not to do it, which uh, would suggest that there is no like restricting element here. Investment right. should be understood broadly. This is a very common approach, I think, that you see both 
among scholars and and in uh, awards as well. And another approach is uh, the opposite, basically that uh, the fact that a term has not been defined in the treaty does not mean anything in and of itself. We still have to interpret that term with the tools with which we interpret treaties generally. So far, so good. Yeah, I'm just loving watching your academic brain work because I'm just like, let's get to what how, how it actually works in practice. But yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> okay, I, so now that, no, that is... I'm enjoying the journey. Now. I'm enjoying the journey. <laughs> okay, on this journey, we now enter the 2001 Salina versus Morocco case. Perhaps one of the most cited in investment treaty arbitration history, really. And this tribunal laid down a number of objective criteria and whether this is a test, a guide, a list of cumulative criteria, or whatever it is, we will leave aside, because uh, that is a debate in and of itself, really. But that tribunal, in any event, defined the term investment in the exit convention as having four elements. So these are the Salini criteria, which, if you are sitting for an exam in investment law, you should be able to recite uh, when you're asleep. Like basically. your last name, yes. Yeah. One, a contribution of money or assets. Two, a certain duration in time, three, an element of risk, and four, a contribution to the economic development of the host state. So these four elements, the Salina Tribunal said, are inherent to what an investment is. Uh, as as aside, defined in the Exit Convention. Exactly, as defined in the Exit Convention, which is a good point that I'll get back to in a minute. So leaving aside the question of whether or not it is even appropriate to lay down objective generic definition uh, definitions of, of what an investment is, which we will also get back to soon, if we accept the use of such a definition generally, and I'm not so sure we should always, I think the three first parts of the Salina test would be acceptable to most people. That is contribution, duration, and risk. The right. fourth one, contribution to development in the host state, is probably a bit more controversial. And I think there have been, or I know there have been subsequent exit cases showing that. And the most commentators seem to agree that this fourth criterion has been sort of incrementally removed from the Salini test through later jurisprudence. So we have essentially, as of now, three live elements of the Salini criteria. And the point of the criteria is basically to distinguish between a normal commercial transaction versus something that's a real investment in a host state from a foreign investor, right? So that's right. why you have duration. The longer it takes to invest or the longer the investment lives within the host state proves that it's an investment and not just a one-off transaction. Exactly, because only the uh, the former would be protected by the exit convention. Right. And also we should say that when it comes to the exit convention, we have this double barrel test that it is, it's popularly called the double barrel test, I think. You must meet jurisdictional requirements in both the exit convention and in the underlying treaty, the BIT, the NAFTA, or the ACT, or, or the CAFTA, or what have you. And this is interesting. Uh, so it's not only the exit convention that we have to interpret, but also the other treaty, the BIT, or the NAFTA, or the ACT, or the CAFTA. And they all include definitions of their own, at least in the, all the cases I've seen, or 95% of the, the treaties. They do also, as I said, initially have definitions of investment. So it's not just the exit convention. We also have another treaty when we have an exit arbitration, and we have to interpret that treaty's definition too. Right. And this is the big question, and this is the whole Salini debate, basically. 
is this. If the states have agreed to define investment in their treaty, i.e. given the term investment a specific subjective meaning, should the tribunal still go after an objective meaning that may differ somewhat from right. the, the party's subjective meaning? And forget me for saying this for the umpteenth time, but non-exit arbitration is different here because then, of course, you have no exit convention. You only have one treaty and typically some set of procedural rules on central ICC, etc. Right. And that's a big, and that's a big procedural star to put on that because a lot of people are, some people have argued non-exit cases under the Salini test and have been completely embarrassed. Yeah, and uh, but also I should say they've received some some uh, support from tribunals. So this is one of those areas where you have differing jurisprudence. I think I I I sense a sort of skepticism on your end on the applicability of the Salini criteria outside of the Exit Convention, right? Right. Or is yeah, because I I share that just uh, as a reflex as well, but I think the proponents would say that. And this is, it's, I think it's Isolux, uh, one of the recent Spanish cases at the SCC is one of these cases, which is basically, they're saying this, that the reasoning is that we have to determine what investment means. Even if there is a definition in the underlying investment treaty, we have to look beyond that because there is an inherent meaning. And to be frank, typically the parties don't do a very good job of defining investment in their treaties. And I think this Isolux and also the um, Master that just came out, another piece of news, Master versus Spain. There are a lot of these Spanish renewables cases are coming in now. Both of these Spanish cases and Isolux was an SEC case and Master was an exit case. So there's a difference there. But they both embraced Salini as some sort of complement to the treaty's wide and subjective definition. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and they were both ECT cases. And as you know, Brian, and as I think many other people would know, the ECT has like an incredibly wide definition of investment in Article 1.6 that basically says everything is an investment. Here is a list of things that could be investments, but they are right. not exhaustive. Well, and, and, that's, then they list. and that's why I think that they do see it as a complement. And I, I haven't read the reasoning in those cases very closely, but I can imagine what it is, is if you have a definition that says anything's an investment, and then the tribunal's kind of left to grapple with, okay, how am I going to structure my reasoning to kind of figure out whether this is an investment that falls under this very broad definition? I mean, they have no guidance. So the good thing about Cellini is, is that it gives this test that defines a very broad definition of investment, which is the ICSA convention with no definition of investment. So I feel like tribunals just look to this test as and maybe they don't even refer to it as a test but now they use these principles or these prongs as you know a way to organize their reasoning yeah exactly it's basically a treaty interpretation right uh, which is was of course what you should be doing but the interesting scenario would be in the hypothetical case just to to riff off of this logic that, that you're on so you, you're the tribunal here now brian and imagine this scenario in which an umbrella has been left in the host state and the treaty says everything is an investment and the claimant claims to not an umbrella an clause like a, fi- a literal umbrella yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> okay maybe not the best example when I use, <laughs> no i like something it something okay. a hot dog a something hot dog. that's perishable uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know the, the treaty says everything is an investment and and it also lists 
500,000 things in an annex that are a non-exhaustive uh, list of examples on right. investment. It does not include the hot talk, right. but it's very clear that it's intended for everything to be regarded as an investment. What do you do? Do you buy the party's right to basically agree to nonsensical things, or do you think that there is an inherent meaning in the word investment? For me, and this is just, this is um, kind of what I was talking talking about just before, is that I would need to analyze. I I mean, it's the porn the pornographic test in the U.S. courts. Have you heard of that? It's like child porn. How do you define child porn? I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. And so it's kind of like an investment. Like I don't know. I don't know if I I, I don't know how to explain why a hot dog is an investment, but I know when I see it, it's not an investment. And then as an arbitral tribunal, you have to define okay, why do you feel that way? And that's where the Cellini criteria, not necessarily the Cellini test, but the Cellini criteria would guide me. And that's what I would do. I would say there's no in contribution to the host state. There, it's a hot dog. It'll last like a week. Um, therefore, it's not a long duration. And um, you know, in that type of analysis, I would go through knowing that it's based on the Cellini test, but not necessarily relying on the test itself. Okay, but then, I mean, I, we, we can all both agree that the Cellini, whatever they are, uh, that's a red flag, so we don't have to use that necessarily. Right. But then you are basically admitting, contrary to what you hinted before, that you would still be open to some sort of objective meaning of investment, even if the parties have agreed on the definition in the treaties, and even if you're outside of exit. Was your point rather that Cellini is that whole jurisprudence emanated in the exit convention context, so we cannot use it outside. I would probably advocate for an objective definition of investment. Good. <laughs> Covering all the fronts. Yeah. Uh, legal, legal counsel. Uh. <laughs> Good, but we should also note uh, because this is a crucial. Well, first of all, we I should, just by way of conclusion, it all depends on the treaty in the question, which must must be interpreted under the Vienna principles, i.e., Articles 31 to 33 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Uh, but pr the problem is here that there, I don't know, the the Vienna principles are not some sort of magic set of keys that automatically and predictably gives you a clear result. But you must at least try to understand the the parties. Uh, will as it has been expressed in a, in a treaty. But what I should say is that the Salini criteria or whatever you want to call them have been more or less incorporated in new treaties. So I haven't actually looked at the Dutch model BIT when it comes to the definition of investment, which we should have done once I heard right. you mentioning it. Yeah. But I know in, in both CETA and TPP or whatever the hell we call TPP these days, TPP plus medium rare minus US or what used to be the TPP at least. Both of these two major treaties have incorporated basically the Salini criteria with the development of host state criterion removed. Okay. So this is a good example of uh, you know, jurisprudence constant and a dialogue between states and tribunals. So it might be, to a certain extent, less of a problem soon as states actually seem to respond and include more thought through criteria for what an investment is. I will read you the CETA definition just to illustrate. Okay. And blah, blah, blah. Investment has the characteristics of an investment, which includes a certain duration and other characteristics, such as the commitment of capital or other resources, the expectation of gain or profit, or the assumption of risk. Mm -hmm. Forms that an investment may take include, and then 
yada 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 and also for greater certainty claims to money does not include blah 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 blah, in order to make sure that only certain claims to money can be an investment so it's a pretty uh good i think response to all this discussion that we've had for almost 20 years now on what investment means definitely with claims to money i mean that's where everybody tries to get it in at the end of the day yeah yeah exactly that is basically where you would try to get your hot dog under right like well now you have my hot dog so i need i need my money (laughs) it's a claim to money yeah, I mean, and, and I think right. and as he, practitioners, we have to be open to this, no? And that's what I was kind of feeling when I saw the model BIT. I was like, wow, this is such a renegade BIT. I can't believe it's breaking from construction, you know, breaking from convention. But, but and that's, that's kind of what CETA is doing. It's kind of, it's a, it, acknowledging what's been happening these past years and not just, you know, forcing us to relitigate the same issues over and over again. So I think we really have to embrace these changes. Yeah, I think it's terrific. And I think it's way overdue. Yes, uh, states are finally looking at jurisprudence in uh, in an um, informed way and respond to it through their treaties because ultimately they are the people that drive the or the the entities, the subjects that drive the treaty-based world forward. So the fact that we now see them reacting, in, not just here, of course, in so many other ways, that's a, just a good sign. Definitely. Great. So no more Salini, or rather Salini in a different shape for the future, most likely. Yes, I I learned the Salini test at the Frankfurt Investment Moot when I tried to use the Salini test, and it was not an exit arbitration. And they said, um, you know, the Salini test is basically irrelevant now. That's what that was what the question from the arbitrator. <laughs> I had never even studied investment arbitration. I was like, oh, I don't oh, even uh, know what I'm doing here. <laughs> So that's been imprinted. And I mean, in that's, my brain. that's not necessarily true, but I guess you were not in the position to oh, no. respond based on the like fifty nine cases on the Salini criteria. <laughs> exactly. So uh, yeah, it's um, it, anybody getting into investment, this is definitely a place to start. I think this, there are a few of these cases, the SGS cases as well, that are so synonymous with the claimant. You, we tend to forget also that there is a country. Oh, sorry, a, a claimant, a, a company, a Salini something something an engineering industrial company in in italy that for us is now synonymous with this case right but it is i guess for most Italians, it's also a company but it's the same as like bottom is now becoming synonymous with with other things than like producing energy based off of rivers in the north of sweden no, as exactly. it is to most swedes exactly should we move on to uh, some more hands-on, less academic procedural <laughs> order stuff? In true to form, yes. Let's move on to the practical. Now we will discuss a more practical issue that has come to mind, or come to my mind especially, which is procedural orders. Um, and we, I've drafted a couple of procedural orders. Joel, have you drafted a couple? Yes, yes, I have. He has. But I, I prefer to refer to them as POs. Because yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds more professional. POs. Um, <laughs> and it starts obviously with procedure order number one, which is usually kind of setting the tone for the whole arbitration. And before our listenership falls asleep, I want to flag already that there's a lot of um, red herrings that are brought up in PO1s and maybe some missed chances uh, in PO1s that I think we can maybe bring to light in this conversation. When I first got the assignment to draft a PO1, I um, stared at a blank screen for about 30 minutes and said, "What? how am I going to include all of this? And will you kind of take 
a lot of people take or arbitrators take a draft that they've had and just kind of reuse it. I know a lot of ICSID tribunals kind of use like an ICSID form that they... And this is for your knowledge management department. Amen. Amen. Um, the problem is, is that you just like any transaction, you use an old arbitration clause and it just becomes, you know, useless over a couple period of time, a couple uh, period of time. Um, but anyway, we will be talking about just a couple things that come into PO1. For example, the jurisdiction of the tribunal can already be established or agreed on by the parties um, in PO1. You can discuss how to handle interim or provisional measures in PO1. Counterclaims, bifurcation, whether there should be any expedited procedures. Um, if there's multiple parties, how to handle those. If there are, how to contact them. Um, any related proceedings or joining proceedings, which can maybe come in in the procedural timetable. Um, you, which leads me to the procedural timetable, setting out the deadlines um, for the entire case, um, all the way up to the hearing. Usually the hearing is to be determined because it will inevitably be moved. Um, but for mm. example, the SEC, they have the default of six months. So PO1 usually has um, your deadlines incremented so that the final award would come out in six months, which if you break it down is almost impossible to meet. Some people do. Oh, yeah. Um, but those always get moved. Um, so that PO1, obviously, that timetable will not usually stand up. You have the governing law. You have any confidentiality issues and there I'll stop for a second because a lot of people don't discuss confidentiality um, in PO1. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? One, it's going to happen later on in case some issue comes up. Um, for example, a sensitive topic comes up, you realize that there's no confidentiality agreement in between the parties because no one has realized that there may not even be an inherent confidentiality of arbitration as we know. Yeah, from... which is often the case in many jurisdictions, actually. Exactly. There is no... No de facto or sorry, no default confidentiality at all, really. So if the parties do not agree, in theory, the parties are free and the tribunal to do whatever they want. Right. And so what happens when you have not agreed to confidentiality? Well, then you're going to have an entire round of submissions, drafts, um, correspondence between the parties on a confident, a separate confidentiality agreement. Um, and parties always get take the chance to argue with each other. So that's going to just delay an, a month of your time uh, to discuss something that the tribunal could already have suggested um, in the beginning. And I guess we can already back up there and say who drafts PO1. Is it a draft coming from the tribunal that is then agreed upon the parties? Um, what I have seen mostly, and this is just because tribunals are too busy to do that, in bigger cases, they'll ask the parties to agree on it. Um, and send a draft to the tribunal for comments. Um, oh, really? That has happened, yes. And I think what it does That's is it allows the parties to not argue because the tribunal will say, well, this is the draft that you have both agreed on. Um, so yeah. it's easier to get an agreement between the parties. And it's also alleviates a lot of the burden from the tribunal. The problem is you have two parties who hate each other trying to agree on the entirety of a case right. early on. You also, of course, have typically, or you could have an administrative secretary, as we talked about on the first episode of this podcast. Yes. Which is this? So this is core. I mean, drafting the PO one at least is core secretary duties. I Absolutely, think. and even naming the secretary can be in PO one. Uh, yeah, that the tribunal, instead of sneaking in someone at the end and expecting them to agree to this secretary, they say, "I'm going to have a secretary from from the get go," um, which made the parties may be a little bit more open to do that. 
one thing, a, a sidebar before we move on is something I've been thinking about. And obviously there are um, more, I think most arbitration people are better at this than you and I, because we haven't had that many ICC cases. But at the ICC, they have this uh, terms of reference thing, yes. which is in the rule that you have to agree to terms of reference, which for all intents and purposes seems to be basically a PO1. But with you need the parties agreement and you need the ICC to sign off on it. And then the ICC has a long like list on what should be in the terms of reference. And uh, you cannot move on with the case until they have approved it, which then I guess there's an history here uh, that, that we could have looked up. But it seems that this is a way for the ICC to make sure that basically you get a PO1 or an equivalent early on in the case yes. before you do anything else, which would indicate that it is very useful to get a number because the things you see in the terms of reference is basically all the stuff you just said. That's what the ICC expects to be in the terms of reference that then everybody involved in the arbitration has to sign off on and then you move on. Absolutely. I mean, the term of reference will, of course, um, have the issue. So it'll be a little bit of merits in there. Um, Oh, yeah, true. Which is great. But, um, you know, PO1 on a normal case will not have that. But that does not foreclose the opportunity of a tribunal to take advantage of this initial phase to say, let's have a list of issues already in the beginning. I mean, it's the it's flexibility and arbitration and to streamline the proceedings already in the beginning would be kind of good for the, arbitra the arbitrators. But Usually when PO1 comes out, the parties haven't even, the idea of what the case is going to be hasn't even materialized in the heads of the council themselves. So, um, yeah. and that's what we talked to Klaus Wobuser about in Sydney, um, that people need to start having an idea of what the case is going to be already in the beginning, um, because then it just creates more complicated proceedings down the, the road when they start realizing something might be a, a good issue and then bringing it up later on. Um, which leads to uh, something else that could happen. What happens to an unscheduled application, an application coming from the party regarding a matter of procedure or merits, if they want to get in a piece of evidence after the deadlines have passed for submitting evidence, how does that, how does that come in? Um, the language of the arbitration, the language of the documents, and something I just want to pause on for a second is the submissions. Um, usually the PO will name um, types of submission or submissions, exhibits, witness statements, and expert reports, how those will be coming in and how those will be sent to the parties. Um, I'm hoping that when you sit as arbitrator, Joel, you'll be a little bit more electronically inclined uh, to not ask parties to send hard copies of everything because I'm literally looking right now at four unopened boxes from DHL in my office of opposing counsel yeah. submissions. It's funny you should mention, I just got a text message. I don't even live where I used to live and I had forgot to update that. I also have a bunch of files to collect somewhere in Sweden where I don't live anymore for the same, for a case. same reason. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it'll yeah, probably but, but, but I think there. that the trend is probably it's moving away somewhat from that that even more seasoned arbitrators now seem to want to prefer to to get it electronically and then maybe at the hearing you know get some either a core bundle or with the 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 things that the parties expect to rely upon at the hearing right and or every one copy of all the submissions that will be available just during the hearing but there's no need to send boxes and boxes and boxes to three arbitrators plus the administrative institution plus the secretary when we could do it electronically. 
Yeah, I mean, agreed. For the for the hearing, of course, if they want a small bundle to be made for them of the exhibits and the witness, or no, the witnesses and the ex, expert reports and the submissions themselves, that makes sense. They want to travel with it and they're going to need it to review it. But to think that they're going to sit down with hard copies of the exhibits at the, you know, throughout the proceedings is going to be, is a bit ambitious. Um, and, and I also blame senior counsel sometimes for not sticking up for their teams uh, when the tribunal sends a old PO that they're just asking people to sign on and tailor make to this case um, to say, listen, I don't think the tribunal needs all of this material. We don't need this material. Yeah. We don't have a fax machine. We, we don't, don't have, have to fax exactly. everything. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I think people are so hesitant to kind of rock the boat um, without thinking of the practicalities, but it just causes such a headache. Um, and the interesting thing is because when you agree to the PO is an agreement between the parties. So, and there was a case that went to the German uh, Court of Appeal that I was reading in preparation for this, um, where the parties agreed to have a certain piece of expert, like an, an expert of one of the parties was to conduct an alternative calculation for the damages uh, in the case, or to conduct the the calculation of damages in the case, and the arbitrator the arbitrators decided the case. They did not use the calculation that was memorialized in the PO on how the calculation was to be conducted, and therefore they tried to and succeeded in setting aside the award by violating the party's agreement and how they calculated damages. So if yeah. you're rendering a PO that is considered an agreement of the parties, and then you as the tribunal do not intend to abide word for word by the yeah. PO, you're subjecting your award to possible set-aside. This is a good point, and it has happened in other cases as well that I know of. It, it's always risky when you start incorporating essentially uh, party agreements on the scope of the case yes. in your procedural orders, which, as the name suggests, should be procedural. Right. And not like the, 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 this is the frame of what the tribunal can do. And if you put that word word by word in a document that is then signed by both parties, you, as you say, you open yourself up to, to challenges as soon as you uh, appear to be deviating from what the parties agree that you should be doing. And th that it could be in like the narrowest of points that you don't think about, like damages calculations, for example. Right. And I think... I, 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 yeah, I think that it's just because people aren't thinking through properly these POs. Uh, and, you know, and some tribunals will send an email instead of a more a full PO to say, okay, this is a decision taken by the tribunal, not necessarily the agreement of the parties. Mm. Um, and that's just a way that's to good. streamline the process without kind of subjecting yourself to any sort of liability in the future as a tribunal member. At the same time, it is, of course, convenient, and I think a, a very good natural instinct for many uh, experienced arbitrators to try to get the parties to agree on as much as possible, as early as possible, in order uh, to move the case forward and to also clarify what is in dispute. So if you can get the, the parties to agree on matter X, Y, and Z already at the outset, yeah, you want to do that, because then you just minimize the work for everyone. So there's, of course, an, um, an opposing interest here in that it is very useful. If you if you can get the parties to agree on, you know, we will only use this valuation method, method or we will only rely upon things that have been submitted in one of three specified documents and no other claims can be brought into, for example. Right. Then you just you can keep a lid on, on the scope of the arbitration. So 
it's uh, it's a tricky balance. I'm happy not to be an arbitrator. <laughs> well, it requires you to be an active arbitrator. And this is, I mean, we've been focusing this entire time on PO1, which is fine because that sets the tone of the proceedings. But, you know, in PO2, 3, 4, 5, when you're discussing an issue that has come up or a specific, you know, intra-controversy that has happened or a minute controversy between the parties and then you have to memorialize something within a PO, um, you... It either could have been avoided by PO1, and if it ha could not have been avoided by PO1, then you're going to really need to... Uh, POs can be a great technique to manage the arbitration effectively. And, you know, that can go as far as, you know, a bifurcation. It could be a decision to bifurcate, or it can be a PO saying that the parties agreed to bifurcate. Um, a lot of these things um, can be memorialized in POs, and the arbitrator can use it as a tool to effectively manage, manage the case. Um, ICA does our friends at ICA have a great checklist on what should be in a first procedural order if you want to look online for that um, oh. but the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators also has um, almost a booklet or a handbook on how to manage arbitrations and procedural orders and that kind of goes through um, provisions that maybe should be included in a procedural order, but also um, descriptions and explanations on each of the points and what to consider um, when deciding to include those into POs. Um, so that's, you know, that's another great. reference. This is also something that when, when we've started our union for tribunal secretaries, this is something we should be putting on the agenda for our peer discussions at the International Labor's Union of Tribunal Secretaries. Absolutely. So it's also something that comes up, of course, for, for secretaries a lot. Yes, absolutely. And then you get to the hearing, um, and usually none of that is discussed in PO1, so you're having a separate procedural order to discuss examination of witnesses, the amount of time, the order, um, and all of these can be argued between the parties. Um, interpretation, which interpreters you're going to hire, which languages each examination will be taken place in, uh, transcripts, um, the transcript company, I mean, all of this ends up being decided later on in the case. And if you're, you know, putting in the groundwork in the beginning, you can avoid, you know, um, months of headache before leading up to the hearing when you're trying to focus on a, a number of other things. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really macro and micro this episode. It's the Selene <laughs> criteria and like the uh, transcripts should be included in the procedural order. <laughs> It's true. I mean, put it put the definition of investment in PO one. <laughs> that would make things easier. Oh, that's actually an interesting question. You probably could not though, because the investment is located in a treaty, so you would have to have the other treaty party involved somehow. Right. Uh, or no. what you could yeah, do though. Interesting. You could. Uh, what you could do is if you noticed, for example, there's a couple of times where you have an exchange of submissions and some objections fall by the wayside. They become irrelevant or they become erroneous or the party just gives up on it. The tribunal could, I think, step in and say, can the parties agree that this objection is no longer being yeah. put forth? Um, this is undisputed. Right. Know. And maybe someone's not objecting to the definition of investment, and even though there isn't, and this could potentially fall outside the general definition given in the BIT and the Cellini criteria, the tribunal could say, mm. we, you know, we memorialize that the party has have no objection to whether there's an investment or not. Mm. Good. And then the other party 
the non-objecting party all of a sudden objects because they realize they've been pointed to something where <laughs> yeah, exactly. they have a fruitful territory to explore and <laughs> the like, tribunal has made a mess out of everything. <laughs> but it's an investment. Okay. Should we uh, move on to happy fun time? Let's do it. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. Crack that beer, Joel. Educational happy fun time. Right. It's no rest for the weary on this podcast. So we've said that New York Convention and Exit Convention, especially the New York Convention, it is really the, the constitution of international arbitration. Uh, very important. I don't know. It does not begin with we the people, but it begins with something similar like this this convention applies to recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards right <laughs> <or something. laughs> so maybe we cannot recite it in our sleep uh, exactly but it is the the bhagavad gita bible quran talmud of international arbitration we do have some other poor cousins uh, from the countryside that do not get the same sort of uh, stardom as the New York Convention and the Exit Convention. So we thought we would do a public service and bring these uh, into the limelight for at least 15 minutes and uh, at least and give them some some credibility and also maybe help a few people out because it's good to have uh, these in your toolbox essentially. Yes. Can I jump in quickly since it's going to be um, applicable? I mean, it's kind of the direct, not competitor, but a complementary instrument to the New York Convention? Yeah, I, I think we have two. Um, I'm guessing you think, you're think thinking of another one. Yeah, I, what I'm are hoping. you thinking of? I'm thinking of the 1961 European Convention on International Commercial Arbitration, a.k.a. the Geneva Convention. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking of the Panama Convention. Ah, good. Then we, we don't overlap. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You can go first on this Geneva. Well, basically, um, both of these, that's good because you know, you're the American. I think the US is signatory to the Panama Convention. And for me, in my world, the Panama Convention is a strange, uh, sort of shadowy version of the New York Convention for uh, a bunch of Latin American states and the US only. Whereas the Geneva Convention, from 1961, which is also it's like three years after the New York Convention. Why would they even? Well, I guess there's there's Taylor St. John research to be done on on the Geneva Convention, but it's just timing wise not not optimal to make a convention just a few <laughs> years after the New York Convention. Right. But I stumbled into the Geneva Convention in doing my research, and basically. Um, it is true what most people say that the Geneva Convention, similar to the Panama Convention, isn't typically that important. I, maybe you have more info on the Panama Convention than I do, but the Geneva Convention doesn't come into play that much. But it could come into play, and this is where I stumbled into it as part of my research, where, when it comes to the place of arbitration. Because there, there are a bunch of states that are parties to the Geneva Convention. And just reading uh, from the bottom of the list, for example, the Ukraine, Spain, Russia, Luxembourg, Kazakhstan, Germany, Denmark, Belgium, Austria, and a few, a few more. If you do have arbitrations involving parties from these countries, the Geneva Convention may be applicable uh, simultaneously with the New York Convention. 
and sometimes at least. Mm-hmm. But it's not that often that we care about the Geneva Convention because it doesn't provide that much of, of substance. But one interesting thing going back to my own research is the place of arbitration. If there is no place of arbitration or if there is no administering institution and the convention is applicable, uh, including because the parties come from uh, from signatory states, both of them, then if there the ah, too long, many subclasses here. If there is no place of arbitration or arbitration rules, the arbitral tribunal shall establish this, which is not controversial. But also under the Geneva Convention, if there is no tribunal in place, which is common, a provisional seat can be established at the request of the claimant or the respondent. And the person to establish this seat of arbitration is the president of the competent chamber of commerce of the country of the respondent's habitual place of residence. Wow. Or by a special committee referred to in the treaty's annex. So if I understand this correctly, if you're in an arbitration where the Geneva Convention is applicable and there is no tribunal yet, either party can apply to the president of the competent chamber of commerce of the respondent state or to some special committee set up by the treaty to have the place of arbitration or the arbitration rules determined. That's pretty cool, no? That is very cool. So I'm a a party in an arbitration, and I can just, uh, through the Geneva Convention, I can invoke the Geneva Convention and contact the SCC and say, okay, Annette Magnuson, you will now appoint a provisional seat? Yeah. Wow. That's at least my reading on it. But yeah. since the, we just normally assume that the Geneva Convention is not applicable, and I guess typically it's not, but but if... Well, like you can never go to Annette Magnusson because Sweden is not a Geneva Convention, so it, it would have to be the president of the Chamber of Commerce in the... Which is also, I mean, there, there's a bunch of Chambers of Commerce, which is the competent Chamber of Commerce of the country of the respondent that's another question but i you would typically go to the capital then i guess right so you, you could go to annette magnuson's uh she, well she's not the president of the chamber of commerce she's no. the president of the arbitration institution so you have to go to whoever the president of the chamber of stockholm chamber of commerce is or to the german danish spanish russian equivalent right. so i think i'm very happy to take phone calls from from listeners on this but i think this could be the thing if you have an arbitration involving parties from geneva convention countries so i was just you know trying to make a case that the geneva convention is not as superfluous as many seem to assume well what about the panama convention well so the panama convention is interesting because you have kind of a conflict with the new york convention or a presumed conflict with the new york convention Uh, The Panama Convention is actually called the Inter-American Convention on International Commercial Arbitration um, from 1975. Um, And it has 35 signatories um, that are members of the Organization of American States, the OAS, um, and it entered into force a year later in 76. Um, And it regulates the conduct of international commercial arbitration and the enforcement of arbitral awards. And this, like you said, because it's more relevant to me because I'm American, it's the United States and mostly Latin American countries, Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, etc. And the interesting thing is because there's kind of a clash. It's okay, well, when do you enforce under the New York Convention and when do you enforce under the Panama Convention? And I had that kind of um, pontification a couple, a, a year ago, I believe. Um, because both govern the same thing. It governs the enforcement of foreign awards in jurisdictions that have signed off on it. Um, so people have tried to 
resolve people. States have tried to resolve the this conflict um, and usually have memorialized it in their national arbitration laws, saying that one will be more favorable to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some confusion, for example, in the United States, where both you know the federal courts and Congress have determined that the Panama Convention takes precedence over the New York Convention, even though courts in their application, when they are enforcing awards, will refer directly to the New York Convention or the FAA to resolve any enforcement issues. Um, so it's it's as confusing as it sounds. And when I read it for the first time, it was, you know, you can enforce under the New York Convention or the Panama Convention. And I was like, well, why would you do either? And it, it shows and it looks like um, they don't really know why. Um, some can... Is there a difference, do you know, in terms of the the... Like for example, the grounds for resisting enforcement, or is it, are they so similar that it doesn't matter in practice anyway? There's small, there's small differences, but I wouldn't say that one presents a great advantage over the other or a material mm-hmm. advantage over the other. So um, they're they're similar enough that you basically can choose one or the other, and you'll have a, the same outcome, barring some um, outliers. Should we move to Europe? And yeah. if the Panama Convention should be in an American and in the broadest sense of the word, both Latin American and North Americans toolbox, uh, so should the Brussels one regulation for European arbitration lawyers or for arbitration lawyers working in the European Union, because we've talked about this uh, briefly before. This is we conflict did. of laws. This mm-hmm. is Ben Hayward's territory. It is a regulation that concerns jurisdiction and recognition and enforcement of court judgments in the EU. So essentially, how do court judgments travel within the union and who is competent to render them, depending on the facts of the case? So very litigation focused. But as we know, arbitration interacts a lot with with litigation. And as the attention paying part of our listenership has already spotted once, this document excludes matters of arbitration arbitration from its scope or at least uh, it, it it did it still does but it was very unclear up until 2015 it just said that that it excludes arbitration from it from the scope and uh, which created a lot of uncertainty as to what is really arbitration related what kind of litigation can we say has to do with arbitration so in, in 2015 the Brussels regulation was recast and there's now a, a recital in the preamble very clearly specifying all the different amounts or uh, different kinds of actions that are outside of the scope of the Brussels regulation. Uh, Actions relating to the validity of the arbitration agreement, actions relating to enforcement or annulment, uh, blah, 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 blah. So, so many things. So we can now say with certainty that most things we can think of that are arbitration related would not benefit from the Brussels regulation generous scheme of uh, recognizing and circulating awards. And here, here's another good corollary with the, the Panama uh, debacle. The New York Convention expressly takes precedence. It's included in Brussels 1. Mm-hmm. So if you do have parallel court and arbitration cases and the court judgment and the arbitral award are both uh, put for enforcement uh, in EU state X and there's a risk of conflict, the award, the arbitral award wins over the the uh, domestic court judgment because the New York Convention always wins in Europe. Arbitration friendly, yay. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is, that is interesting. I don't have a, I don't have another convention. Do you have another convention? 
Um, well, I do, but it's on a sad note. I was thinking we should end on. Is your, okay, uh, I have others. I mean, I have other stuff, just not a convention per se. Okay, but it's an international instrument of some kind. It's an international instrument, and it's basically based off um, treaties of friendship or treaties of enhanced cooperation. Um, and treaties of friendship basically were agreements between two states that had an MFN obligation. Um, and they and some other stuff and like, and some other stuff. But sailors it, should be able to exit ships in port without being arrested and so on. Right. So it would be the a treaty of friendship, commerce, and navigation are usually the three topics. So yeah, including the navigation, whether their ships could pass through, and yeah, people being arrested on ports and stuff. But I it also to, on a side note, I had to dig up info on this, or had to. I wanted to, and I did because it was raised. Oh, I can't recall the facts exactly now. So I'll. I'll uh bodge this i think but uh someone claimed to have relied on that type of treaty between the u.s and sweden mm -hmm. because there was one from like 1790 something signed by like benjamin franklin and a member of the swedish royal family or something uh, and the woman claimed that she had successfully relied on that treaty in u.s courts in like the 1980s in a, a, a court case involving uh, i think either maintenance or uh, the right to care for her child or something like that, which I couldn't dig up, but I will have to look into the treaty. I think even I circulated, no, Annette Magnusson on the SEC circulated this on the ultimate list, and it was discussed uh, extensively, like what are these treaties doing now? What what do they really entail when we have, for example, subsequent investment treaties and WTO right. and other things? That, so it was a whole discussion, but it uh, unfortunately it turned out that this particular treaty between the US and Sweden was revoked by the US government in the early 20th century. So Right, a lot of them have been revoked. Um, and yeah, in, unfortunately. <laughs> and in the treaties it says how, that they can, how can, they can be revoked or whether they're renewed unless they're automatically renewed unless revoked. But I think that, I mean, I think that really comes into play when it discusses whether there has been a violation of that treaty, right? Some of these friendship treaties refer to the ICJ, for example, to give them jurisdiction. So the parties have agreed as being states, they have agreed to submit any dispute to the jurisdiction of um, the ICJ. However, some of them, and if you look at the EC has, um, the European Commission has signed cooperation agreements with a lot of developing countries um, in the Middle East, for example, a lot of the Stans, they have um, cooperation agreements. And if you read these cooperation agreements, it's basically saying, we're going to kind of help you and give you information and ensure that you can kind of work with us and do business with us to um, enhance your development as a developing country. And if there's been a violation of that type of agreement, these cooperation agreements, they don't necessarily go to the ICJ, and some a lot of them don't even have dispute resolution clauses, but they say if there is a dispute, then they will go, they su submit it to an arbitration type of dispute resolution, but it goes to basically hmm. this council, um, and it talks about in these cooperation agreements how to appoint this council and how they're going to decide and the effect of what their order would be and the, you know, the obligation to adhere to that type of order. Um, so you kind of go to this ad hoc style panel um, that will decide on any violation of the agreement. Interesting. Do you know if there have been any cases based on these agreements? No, because I assume that they would be confidential. Or not. Oh, it right. doesn't say that they would be confidential, but I just assume that they would be handled between the parties. But I have not found one, but I have researched this, and I think that you could potentially argue that 
um, you could d start doing this. And when you think about, you know, the definition of investment, if you have a type of dispute that doesn't necessarily fall under the definition of investment, or a party is not party to the ICSA convention, then you kind of have, okay, well, how do I seek redress for a type of violation? And some parties mm. can look to these cooperation agreements and say, okay, well, look, we have some right. sort of international instrument, and we have some sort but of... That's still, that presumes that you have your home state with you because the individual cannot exercise rights under that treaty. You would still have to go to your home state and get them to sort of espouse your claim on your behalf, which is, as we know, historically it wasn't very easy and probably still wouldn't be if you tried today to go to Swedish foreign ministry and ask them to, or the EU commission for that matter, and ask them to put pressure on a sub-Saharan African state that they have completely other considerations are coming into play for them when they have are conducting business with that state. Right. If you think about it in like the enforcement context, for example, if you have a state that um, lost an award and now they're having to pay and another state has used assets in a way that the respondent state is saying is wrong, for example, um, could they have recourse under some of these cooperation agreements to hold the state in which enforcement is sought um, to hold mm. them responsible for any foul play, for example. Mm, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. This is an, 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 or at least to me, an unknown source of treaties. Yeah. Uh, but the unsung They're heroes, man, let's, let's, yeah. <laughs> the resurgence of cooperation agreements. <laughs> oh, and on that note, we must also mention every state's favorite arbitration related in instrument that they have not signed, which is the Mauritius Convention. Yeah. Uh, dun, which dun, is dun. the convention. So, yeah, by signing this convention, states would make the unsettled transparency rules applicable to investment arbitrations that are initiated under the, that state's investment treaties. Basically, it's an opt-in to the transparency rules, which were finalized in 2014. Right. And I count three ratifying states, <laughs> which is Canada and Switzerland, both of which were very active in the transparency rules drafting, and Mauritius, which is the state that bears the name of the convention. <laughs> so there's a bunch of EU states, for example, who have signed but not ratified. Uh, I think it would require that the EU did so. And gossip is that a small number of EU states are against that. And then basically the rest of the world, uh, th those states have not even signed the Mauritius Convention. So it, it's up and running, as we mentioned uh, in our year roundup, because you only needed three ratifying states to activate the treaty but only three states have ratified still so uh, i think for now at least it is an unsung hero or although maybe we could be optimistic for the future and hope that this will change i don't know i don't have any any educated guess on whether or not more states will actually ratify but three states is a pretty meager outcome given how important transparency <laughs> seems know, to be to the community of states but there's no is there a minimum amount of signatories required for it to enter into force yeah three three ratifications that was the minimum that's exactly what we have now. Oh, okay so it is in force so it is in force as okay. of a few months ago yeah but i mean in practice it doesn't help that much i don't even know if there are any uh, there's got to be at least one treaty between canada switzerland or Maria it's just somewhere there, there's a bilateral relationship that has a treaty. <laughs> right. So you, you could may, maybe launch a case uh, under a treaty that would be 
affected by the Mauritius Convention, but it's it's not very likely. It would, of course, make a big difference if the EU and all the 27 member states immediately became Mauritius Convention states. That would uh, uh, automatically draw hundreds of investment treaties under the umbrella of the Mauritius Convention. But for now, we have to be cautiously sad. <laughs> And there's many other conventions that we haven't talked about, like the Hague Convention on taking evidence, on helping take evidence. I mean, there's... Oh, yeah, yeah. Practical one. Yeah, that, that it is a practical one. Convention. My favorite convention? Do you have one? Or, or treaty? Oh, the, I'm asking like, the, like, Liz, the Lisbon Treaty is my favorite. Oh, really? Yes. That would be at the very bottom of my list. All these uh, constitutional treaties of the European Union are so badly drafted. I thought oh, you would and, say something. Oh, not drafting-wise. Just um, I just have a funny story about that when I was learning about EU law. And I found a treaty that was only signed by the, you know, the original or like the first 20 members that were EU member states. And I didn't know about the Lisbon Treaty at the time that I was studying Because <laughs> I'm American and I don't know these things. And someone was like, the Lisbon Treaty. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, of course. Everything of applies. Course. Got it. So no, I haven't. I'm not. I'm not admiring the drafting. I'm just admiring the the power of it. Oh yeah, that is true. That is one thing we can say for sure. That the Lisbon Treaty has indirectly become a crucial arbitration treaty. Yes, yeah. the ECMIA case would testify. Do you have a favorite? Not really. I was trying to to think of. Uh, I, I well, I mean, the the obvious choice and going full circle would be the New York Convention, which is like a page and a half. Uh, and very uh, modest, and also, I think, minimalistically drafted, but that has become sort of a cornerstone of everything that we're doing. That's a boring answer, but I, I think the your convention would be the obvious one. Right. Uh, and, yeah, I will leave it at that and not speculate on, on like bilateral tax treaties. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I no, know, no. know nothing about <laughs> Yeah, there's all those treaties on well, double taxation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Pandora's yeah, we, box. We have, we have more. Yeah, exactly. But now at least we've talked about a, a few of the the ones that we should be should be at least aware of. And then I think next episode will be the last. We will probably address it in the next episode when we have figured it out ourselves, what to do. We will go on a hiatus for the summer, at least maybe even longer. We have some some interesting things that are might be bubbling up on how to take this podcast further. To the uh, next I level. Have to, get a phd as well somewhere in between here <laughs> so maybe we'll take a longer hiatus depending on on how fast i am or what happens in our lives generally but we have at least one more episode to go of the second season of the arbitration station no the next episode is our last episode okay yeah but i'm a lawyer so we, we have we have <laughs> one <laughs> option not, not restricted to uh, uh, and you know a non-exhaustive list of episodes are coming up. <laughs> might be one. Yes, uh, it's exciting times, but we appreciate all the support thus far. And follow us at the Arb Station. Email us at thearbitrationstation@gmail.com. And uh, thanks, Joel. It feels good to go back to basics. Yes, it really does. Maybe we will find one guest for the final episode, but that's a big maybe. Otherwise, It'll be a it's surprise. just you and I. And it's in Stockholm. We will be in the same room, which yes. is good for all our listeners as well, because that makes it more more pleasurable to listen Easy to. Easy on the ears. Perfect. All right, until next time. <laughs>